Hi, Pastor Ryan here. The message you're about to hear is a little unusual in that it's highly conversational in tone as an effort to show how one might respond in a real conversation with a real person who has real questions. In other words, it's meant to train and prepare us to go and share our faith with our neighbors in the workplace and in the real world. I hope it prepares you and encourages you. God bless. Uh, welcome again. My name is Ryan Oschleger. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Sunrise Community Church. I'm also a husband, a father, and really just a regular dude who gets impatient with his children sometimes and openly dislikes scented candles. <laughs> All right, so I'm just a, just a regular guy. And, but what's going to outlast all my identities is that I'm a member of God's family. And nothing would be, bring me greater joy this morning as if you were to join with me in that. Lately, just to find out what's going on with somebody and their lives, I've been asking the question, you know, putting God aside for a moment, what's the biggest obstacle in your life right now? And one of the responses I've often got over the years to a question like that is, you know, honestly, my life is just hard. Like just all of it is so hard. People often talk about it coming in, in waves. It never seems to stop. It's hard for me. And in some cases, it seems even harder for other people that I know. And so I've rephrased this as a question this morning. Why is life so hard for me? And maybe even harder for others. And it's a big question. It's going to take a little time to get through this morning. But if that is the question, I'd like to put a question to you to start. And that is, how do you account for life's hardness? What do you tell yourself when hard things come your way? And you deal with them and you address them. There are a few ways I find that people tend to respond, and that is, one, one thing they tell themselves is, hey, stuff happens, only they don't always use the word stuff, right? They, junk happens, this sort of thing. It's just the random stuff of life, right? The random stuff that just happens because there is no creator and there's no purpose behind all of it. It just is. And the advantage to this response and this framework for understanding hard things is that no one is to blame. But of course, the disadvantage equally is no one is responsible. No one's responsible to help. It is what it is, right? It can't be helped, people often say. Because to help would be to admit some moral standard, some moral obligation beyond oneself. Or people will often still help, find it within themselves to help because it makes me feel good about myself. So you hear this all the time, right, with celebrities, athletes. But it happens in real life as well that I do something kind because it makes me feel good about myself. And while that's kind, it still helps people, it is still... Uh, self-centered, and thus limiting. Because when that help gets to the point where it hurts the helper to continue to help, people stop. There's no motivation to push oneself further 
doesn't make one feel good about themselves any, anymore. So that's one way people deal with this. Another way is they say, well, you know, at least I'm not as bad off as blank. Right? I'm not as bad off as the single mother in the projects. Not as bad off as the hungry child in the Sudan. Not as bad off as the imprisoned missionary in China. And we say these things to attempt to alleviate suffering through being grateful about it. Being grateful by way of comparison to other people. But the problem with this is the suffering experienced is still genuine. It's still suffering. In the same way that you might get kind of ticked off at a person who makes little of your plight or your complaint, so also... When you try to make little of your bitterness, of your hardship, of your suffering, it won't go away. You kind of suppress it, you push it down, at least I'm not like those other people, but it lingers there because the suffering is still genuine. The hardship you endure is still hard and real. Another way people try to deal with hardship is they just try not to think about it. We say this, man, I just try try to push it away. This principle of sort of detachment really finds its origins actually in Buddhism, which claims that one can gradually alleviate hardship by gradually detaching oneself from it. And sort of, they would say, into a state of nirvana, ultimately. That's the final goal. But you detach yourself from the world, and this becomes formally popularized through Zen Buddhism, the practice of Zen meditation, and now uh, even yoga some forms of which have adopted its key principle of detachment and have added on some admittedly very difficult and impressive stretching as well, right? (laughs) I'm impressed by it. And the advantage is it helps practically deal with the daily annoyances of life by creating this inner stillness. But the disadvantage is it causes a person to grow distant from real people with real problems because you're detaching yourself. And furthermore, when the junk really hits the fan in your own life, you need more than breathing and stretching to help you. All right? and, and for other people, you need more than the escape of alcohol and sports and detaching oneself that way. And so each of these frameworks that deal with suffering has limitations. So I'd like to share with you why I think Christianity provides the best framework to account for the hardness of life why it exists, and how it works, and the, also provides the best solution to the problem. The best framework for understanding it, the best solution to it. And I'm hoping you wouldn't mind if we talked about that for a little bit. I'm not going to try to prove to you every single aspect of Christianity is true and has this airtight evidence for it. I'm just going to try to show you that all things considered, Christianity provides the best framework for and the best solution to life's hardness. Because that's the way we make most most decisions in life, right? We gather all things together, reasonably look at it, and then take a step of faith. Whether it's marriage, choosing a bank, eating a bowl of cereal. All things considered, from what I understand, it's reasonable, but I still take a step of faith. So I just want to ask you to be fair and, and think about it in that way. Christianity's framework. The Bible gives three 
three reasons why life is so hard. One, the act of what's called sin. Two, the disease of sin. And three, persistent temptation. The good news is we find this framework all in one place in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, which means, by the way, beginning, because it talks about the beginning of this world and the beginning of human life. And there we find three major reasons why life is so darn hard. I don't necessarily want you to open your Bible. You can if you want to, but I'm just going to share it with you. And I think you're going to find that it's pretty familiar. What happens there is that God creates this good land, this good food, amazing beauty for all of humankind, for specifically the first two human beings to partake in and experience. It's, it's made really for their enjoyment. All of it they can partake in, except for the fruit of one tree. This is one, though, of thousands just one they got to withhold from. And God tells them not to eat. That's where the act of sin comes into play. Eve, then Adam, decide to partake of the fruit, eat of the fruit of this forbidden tree. And what wins Eve over is this idea planted in her mind that God doesn't really want them to eat of this fruit because if they eat of this fruit... They can be like their own gods. They can be their own gods. In other words, you know, you can do a better job of running your life than God can. That's the idea planted in their mind, and that's still the starting place for all sin today. Sin, which is basically this idea that it's this big no in our hearts that says, you know, no, I can do this better than what any authority tells me, especially God. And it results in, we see in Genesis, chaos. Specifically, shame. Adam and Eve have to cover up their nakedness. They're ashamed of looking at each other. Fear, they hide from God. Like a big old game of hide-and-go-seek, they do not want to be found by him. And finally, blame. When God asks what's wrong, the man blames his wife. Right? And she... Blames the devil. All right? Uh, I've heard that conversation before. And I would say it's the same starting line. It's the same starting line today with the same results in this day and age. Then what comes into play is the disease of sin because this first act of sin unleashes into the human race a hereditary disease. Sort of through our spiritual DNA. So everyone gets it. This disease, often called original sin, is the reason why babies cry instead of shouting hallelujah when they come out of the womb. They want, no, I want to go back in. Right? And it's not too much later, it's the reason why they're also spouting off the word no among their first words. Even though you try so hard not to teach them that word, it comes anyway. Why? Because we all tend toward wanting to run our own lives. Babies are the best evidence of that. We want to be our own God. The results of which we find out also in Genesis 3 are physical pain, relational discord. People want to get the upper hand over one another. Frustration with work. Just decay. And eventually the death of all living things. 
all there in the beginning, all present and accounted for. In fact, later in the New Testament, we're told that all of creation groans, right? Because it's all in decay. It's all in bondage to decay, awaiting Jesus to return and free the world from death. And so all of it is, all of creation is groaning for this reason, waiting. So uh, do you have any yapping dogs in your neighborhood? Anyone out there? Any loud dogs? It's okay to raise your hand. Your neighbor's probably not here. All right? That dog is really just expressing a desire for Jesus to return. You probably didn't know that. All right? And so, and so think about it. If a neighbor then has issue with your dogs barking, you can just say, sorry, dude. You know, take it up with Jesus. You know, ask him to hurry up. He just wants him to come back. All right, so that's two things. But then there's this third thing that works together with the act of sin and the disease of sin. It's persistent temptation. This serpent appears in Genesis 3. The serpent who is a real and actual devil who's described in Genesis as the subtlest of creatures. And that's important, the subtlest of creatures. Because you might say, well, you know, I can avoid evil in my life. You talk about all this hard stuff and, and the reasons, come, but I can avoid evil in my life. But, you see, the devil never tempts with pure evil. He takes something very good and he perverts it for evil. He, he disguises it with a, enough good that you think, oh, you know, it's not that bad. So think, take, for example, sex, status, and power. You know it's all there? In the beginning of the world, in Genesis 1 and 2, all are actually good gifts, sex, status, and power, good gifts given to mankind by God in Genesis 1 and 2. But the devil subtly encourages, sex is good, but what about a variety of sex partners and methods for more pleasure? What about status that's greater than being just made in God's image? What about power over more than just all living things, but also over other people, manipulating them to the point of oppressing them? So you see, this this three to four thousand year old text seems pretty relevant then in, in explaining and exploring the origin of hardship and suffering in our day and age and how it plays out today, don't you think? And what's cool about Genesis in chapter 3 is that it gives us the first prediction that God, did, God would one day solve the problem of hardship through a person born of a woman who would defeat the devil and defeat this disease of sin that all of us inherit. The entire Old Testament, which was finished around 400 B.C., all points to and predicts ultimately how God would solve this problem of hardship through a person, through a savior, through a rescuer. One prediction is made around basically 700 B.C. And I'd like you to join me in reading it together, if you would, if you'd be so willing. It's in Isaiah, a book called Isaiah, chapter 52. And, you know, we have Bibles you can use. Normally I just hand you one if we're having a regular conversation, but I can't do that for sake of time. So we have some of these chair pockets here or in the aisles as well. If you're using one of those, it's on page 520. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, and we'll go through chapter 53. Read this with me if you would. 
And as we read, I want you to think about what stands out to you as we read. What kind of sticks out to you? God says, one day, behold, my servant will act wisely. This person shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you and your suffering, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, human appearance. His form was beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. That which has not been told them, they will see. And that which kings have not even heard, they will understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, basically what he has done, been revealed? This person, this servant, grew up before God like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should enjoy looking at him, no beauty that we should fix our eyes and desire looking at him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with sadness, with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was this punishment, this chastisement, punishment, that brought us peace. And by his wounds, by that punishment, we are healed. We are kind of like sheep who have walk around, who go astray. We have each turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a, shear, like a sheep led before its shearers, its hair cutters, is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Had no living relatives, in other words. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his, <clears throat> his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for sin, he will see his offspring, his children. He shall prolong his days, give them eternity. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I divide a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for people who had that big no in their heart. What stood out to you? What was sort of highlighted in your mind there? I'm guessing one thing might have been that it sounds a lot like the Christ of Christianity, doesn't Doesn't it? At least the words you've heard before associated with Jesus and the cross. Even though it was written 700 years before this Jesus came to the earth. 
One of my heroes, a guy named Martin Luther, once said, real people, he commented how real people must flee the hidden God and run to Jesus Christ. When we ask questions about the hardness of life to an invisible God, so much about him, when we ask those questions, seems hidden. But he does not remain hidden because he became a man that we could see, that we could hear, that we could touch. And what stands out to me from this passage is not only how the God-man Jesus suffered, but that it's a whole new category of suffering. And I hope you don't mind, if we just take a minute here, if I could point out a few ways that his hardship was harder than ours. First of all, God's hardship included just about everybody. Do you notice how universal it sounds here? You got many were astonished. Many nations, it says here. Uh, kings everywhere would stop talking. They would cease issuing decrees. Stop their governing. One of the reasons why this had a universal impact is that God is a God who didn't make it easy on himself. He was born, friends. He was even born into an assassination attempt on his life. That's how life started for him. All he had to defend himself was seven pounds of baby flesh under threat of assassination. It goes from there. One woman put it this way. She said, you know, whatever reason God chose to make us the way we are, limited, suffering, subject to sorrow and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine, to play by his own set of rules, the rules he gave mankind. There's this, this really cool little, little play. Didn't make it much on stage, but it's called The Sign of Jonah. It was written back in 1960. And the last scene of this play is the final judgment where all the people, it's just the sort of typical picture you might think of of the judgment of the world if, if, if you were to believe in God. All these people gather to hear God's verdict of what he's going to say in judging people. And the scene depicts people gathered on this plane in different groups. Little small groups. For instance, you have the Jewish people, victims of religious, political, social persecution, concentration camps. You have uh, those with a darker shade of skin who've been subject to degradation and in many cases slavery. You have illegitimate children born out of wedlock, subject to scorn, the butt of jokes and sneers their entire lives. You have the poor, the afflicted, the mistreated. Each group appoints a representative to stand before God and challenge his divine right to pass sentence on them. And what they say is, no, God, you have to suffer like us. And they make this conclusion. The conclusion of the council reads like this. You must be born a Jew. The circumstances of your birth must be questioned. You must be misunderstood by everyone insulted and mocked by your enemies, betrayed by your friends. You must be persecuted, beaten, and finally murdered in the most public and humiliating fashion known to mankind. 
that moment, a brilliant light illuminates across the plain. Everyone else falls silent. And emblazoned across the sky is the signature of Jesus Christ with the inscription beneath, I have served my sentence. The hardship that Jesus Christ endured was different because it represented the hardest lives of human history. God's hardship was different, though, also because it was much worse. It was much worse because, number one, he was innocent. Number two, the pun- he got the punishment mother load. He's described as a lamb here in this passage for his gentleness and for his humility. He didn't open his mouth even when he was mistreated, it says here. In verse 9, it says he had no hint of violence. Can you imagine having no hint of violence when someone would strike you? He, he never lied or exaggerated when it would have been so easy to do so under the threat of death. This all adds up to a completely righteous and blameless life. Yet, it's also the life that gets the full weight of God's punishment. God, you see, is perfectly just as he hints towards here, and he had to punish because he's perfectly just. Jesus is the only man who lived blamelessly, so he's the only man who can take the blame that's ours to take. He took the full weight, and it was bad. Men hid their face from it. you imagine that? They were astonished because this God-man was marred beyond human likeness. It was so bad that many considered him, it says here, cursed by God. And that's because God the Father laid on Jesus the sin of us all. That big no in our hearts. Essentially, Jesus Christ stood up in the courtroom, voluntarily raised his hand, and took the punishment for the guilty. God's hardship was also at another level because his hardship can permanently benefit just about everybody. It says here that he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. All right, if you read with me, it says you know, he was wounded, he was crushed because of our rebellion, but the punishment that brought us peace with God is on him. It brought us peace between us and God. So, in accepting punishment, verse 11 says that He can make many to be counted righteous. Do you see that? He makes many to be counted right with God, like a verdict. Counted right with God. Doesn't that sound so good? Remember when pain, suffering, and hardship first entered the picture? We talked about it earlier. It's when man first sinned against God by deciding he was a better God than God. If you want to do something about hardship in your life, in the lives of others, you you and I must first recognize that our lives are hard primarily because we've decided that we are better at running our own lives than God is. And I'm no exception, friends. You know, as this new year has kind of come in, I don't know about you, but I've been busy making plans, at least in my mind. Plans Plans for me, plans for me and my wife, plans for me and my family. 
whether it's how we're going to plan to use our money in 2013, whether it's or where we're going to travel and when that's going to be, or who are the people we'd like to spend extra time with this year. All these choices, by the way, have hardship consequences, not the least of which is for my mother-in-law, who we are planning to have stay with our boys while Katie and I travel. She doesn't know it yet, but hardship's coming her way, all right? But hard, I mean, choices, decisions, taking control, they have consequences for others. They create hardness. And seriously, this week I had to stop and say, whoa, who puts you in charge, Ryan? Are you willing to acknowledge that you've put yourself in charge where God should be? If so, if you're at least willing to admit that, it'd be tempting to move on. You know, now that I've acknowledged the problem, it's out in the open, I, you know, I can be less, less self-centered, more accountable to people, more thoughtful of others. But, 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 that's where we would underestimate the disease of sin and the persistence, the real persistence daily, daily, hour by hour of temptation. And because it's so darn daily, We need help to get right and to stay right with God. We need help beyond our own resources, our own capacity. That's where the New Testament comes in. It talks about Jesus and why he's so important. One verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, says that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be like sin for us. even says to be sin for us. It's this moment in time on the cross where he becomes sin in order that we might become right with God. Do you hear that? Jesus paid that price for us. He gives us the power to live such a life for other people. And you, friends, can trust Jesus to make you right with God and to run your life. Let me explain what that could do for you. What that could do when you become a member of God's family and begin to face hardship as a member of God's family. First of all, one thing it would do is give you a different perspective. Hard things start to have a purpose. A real, final purpose. Hard things grow us. Hard things grow others. Hard things get our attention. First, they grow us. We know this from everyday life. We don't grow unless we encounter some kind of resistance, right? Makes us stronger. The purpose of resistance as God's child, as a Christian, is to make us more in his image. Every day, more in his image. See, the image of God in us has been marred and blurred by the decay of sin. But each time we rely on Jesus in the midst of hardship, we grow to the next level, grow to be more like him. Grows others. One of the blessings of being a pastor is watching God use women who've endured, for instance, divorce, infertility, even miscarriages, and even grow through them as they relied on Jesus for help and for hope. And they give others hope who are going through the same things. They can relate to them. Seen men in the church endure and grow through job loss, through temptation, through being constantly disrespected in whatever they are and whatever they're doing. 
that would be used by God to help other men go through similar circumstances. They can relate. God uses people, but especially their hardships. Another thing God does with hardships, another purpose he has, is to get our attention. I am a stubborn, single-minded person at times. It's just It's who I am. And I get stuck living selfishly, and God has to bring pain into my life sometimes to get my attention. It happens to people all throughout the Bible. He has to just insert pain. I, I love you. I want to get your attention. It's why all king, you know, animal kingdom analogies of Jesus consist of lion and lamb. If you read the Bible, he's called the lion and he's called the lamb. He loves us so passionately that like a lion, he tears apart anything that gets in between you and him. And that can hurt sometimes. That's the stuff we often like and we cling to. But once he gets to us like a lamb, he cares for us tenderly and patiently. So hard things start to have a purpose, but also you can become that good Samaritan. A lot of people who do charity work, which is great, they do it oftentimes to to make it up for, to make up for, to atone for, to fill up something lacking in their life. And I understand I've been there before, but if, if that's you, Look at the anger that sometimes builds up due to unappreciation for all that work you do. How can that anger be turned into forgiveness? Look at the insecurity that freezes you from often taking further action. I don't know if I should. I don't know if I'm good enough. How can that insecurity be turned into security that frees you, not freezes you? Only through trusting one who can give you absolute security because he gives you his scorecard, not yours. By trusting someone who gives you the power to forgive, the power to live selflessly, because he gives you himself. He gives you God, called the Holy Spirit, to live inside you and give you power to live the life you've always wanted to. The third thing that happens when you become a Christian and you deal with hardship is you get hope, unflinching hope. Because Jesus defeated death. One day all mourning will turn into laughter because of this. Sickness will turn into wholeness. The perversion of sin will all be made straight and completely delightful. You can carry on through the hardness of this week, this month, this year, this life. Because you've got trillions of years ahead of you in eternity and more. The God of Christianity played by the same rules. And it cost him far more. But in paying the price, he provides a forever solution to the hardship in which each of us has this opportunity to begin participating now. We can get caught up in it now by trusting our lives to Jesus. If it's okay with you, I just want to share with you a story to close. I don't know if anyone had heard of her. Horatio Spafford, he's a lawyer and a common businessman from Chicago, Illinois, who also happened to know and love Jesus. Horatio had an office in downtown Chicago and a home with his wife and two daughters just outside the city. He nearly lost it all in the the great Chicago fire of 1871, burned down the whole city, but thankfully, all was spared save his office. And he gave God all the credit for sparing himself and his family on this particular occasion. 
The Spaffords then threw themselves into helping victims of this fire, even taking people into their home who were homeless. One of these persons turned out to be a woman who was, quite frankly, a pain in the rear end for their family, especially his wife. Just one of those people. But she was otherwise homeless, so they, they, they took her in and put so much stress on Horatio's wife that the family doctor insisted that they get away, take a break from her for a while, go on an extended family vacation. So he buys tickets on this world-class French cruise liner. But, but he has to stay behind to close on a business deal that would actually help them afford this trip. So they wouldn't go into massive debt. So he sends them ahead, planning to catch up with them later. And weeks later, he writes them a letter telling them how much he deeply misses them. And, but then weeks go by and doesn't hear back from them. Days, nothing. More days and only silence until one December morning when he sees a cable message from Wales. He tears it open and reads a two-word message from his wife that says, saved alone. The ocean liner had sunk, leaving few survivors. His wife, but not his two daughters. Weeks later, he would find himself standing with the captain of the sunken ship and a fellow grieving father. The captain explained where he believed the ship had sunk. Horatio was then left with his thoughts in the bow of the ship, left with the hardship and the suffering of knowing the bodies of his little girls lay in the cold ocean floor beneath. But you do not hold them, whispered Horatio, tears streaming down his face. You grasp them but for a moment. Now their true father holds them safe in his arms. Anna and I will see them again, for it is well with their souls. That moment he dug into his pocket, pulled out paper and a pencil, scratched down words that poured out his heart in a torrent of both pain but also faith. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. He shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not the part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. The Lord hastes the day when my faith will one day be sight. The clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. The trumpet shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Pray with me if you would. Lord, few of us have experienced that kind of hardship. Losing a child, but it is real. Life is hard. Even in the dailiness of life, it's hard. And even though the pain might not be the loss of a child, and that is great, it is pain nonetheless. It is hardship. It is real. 
God, and we search off in our whole lives to find solutions to relieve that pain and that hardship, but none of them seem to stick. So where you're sitting this morning, if you believe, if you trust that Christianity provides the best way of understanding why life is so hard and provides the best solution to a God who became man, who came to endure everything we endured and pay the price we deserve to pay. So to one day free us completely from the hardness of this life. If you are sensing on your heart that it's time to believe that, I want to encourage you to let go of the control of your own life, to let go of thinking that you can run it by yourself. Trust Jesus to forgive that big no in your heart and to run the life that maybe you've been running into the ground. So you can just pray this with me. Lord, please forgive that big no in my heart. Father, I know that most of the hardship that I experience is caused by the hardship from my own heart, saying no to you and trying to run my own life. Father, I want to stop doing that, and I want to trust you. I want to trust you, Jesus. You came and you experienced everything and more that I experienced in this world. You're the only God who's ever done that, who's ever claimed to do that. I want to trust you today. And I don't know everything what that would look like, but I know it will help me not only address, not only handle, but ultimately one day overcome all this hardness, all this pain, all this sorrow. So I ask this of you, believing that you're out there. In Jesus' name, amen.